Calvary Road. This will be the second part in this series. Reading from the scriptures here. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, uh, we'll have the uh, scriptures posted up there in the PowerPoint presentation. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Also Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the, our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the whole world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And finally, Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we begin to uh, study more about the cross of Jesus Christ and what it means to us, Lord. I pray that you just visit us in your power, Lord, and uh, uh, Lord, when uh, we see things in our lives that need to be straightened out, Lord. Just uh, convict us of that, Lord. Help us to have that teachable spirit and that hearing ear to hear what you would speak to your church. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd uh, um, help us to all apply this message to our own lives, starting from the preacher on down. And I thank you for this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last week we began a new series entitled The Calvary Road. It's based on this little book right here by Roy Hessian. And I've had this in my library for, you know, way over 40 years. I've read it a number of times. As you can see, it's really thin. You know, there's only about 70 written pages in here. But I'm taking a uh, uh, message each week based on the chapters. This one is on uh, brokenness. And you know how long that chapter was? Four pages. So I'm going to condense four pages into one message here. Uh, rest assured, we will take up the full amount of time, though. Um, this book emphasizes the cross of Jesus Christ and what it means for each and every one of us. And I just, uh, I repeat it again because I, it, it's so significant. I remember that quote from Billy Graham to uh, Greg Laurie. Sorry, I'm behind here. Uh, Greg Laurie, where Greg Laurie was a young man at the time, and of course, uh, Billy Graham had to be at least in his 70s. And he asked him this question. 
Now, what would an old Billy tell a young Billy about what he should be preaching on, what he should be emphasizing in his sermons? And he's, you know, Greg Laurie said that Billy, without hesitation, I would preach more on the cross of Jesus Christ because that's where the power is. That's where the power lies. And Paul talks about this. We just read this. I didn't cover this scripture, though I, I had it in the scriptures. I didn't cover it. But Paul talks about this. He says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God. And how much the world hates this message. Many of them don't even believe in God at all, but they believe that if there is a God up there in heaven that's going to call them into account someday, that they produce all these good works and he's going to let them into heaven. And that's a false assumption. You know, because the only righteousness that means anything in the day of judgment is not your righteousness, it's not your good works, it's the good works of the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And he says that in Philippians chapter 3, he says that we appropriate His righteousness by faith. Amen? Okay. The bottom line of this is that these people like to glory in their works. But the cross of Jesus Christ denies that our works are sufficient for salvation. And in the process, you know what happens? The pride of man is brought low. You have to humble yourselves and admit that your works are not sufficient. And you appropriate the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. So these people say, oh, it's foolishness to think that one man could pay for our sins by his death. We must produce good works in order we can, so that we can earn salvation. But what does Paul say? He says, God forbid that I should boast, that is, uh, that I should glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6.14. And he further goes on, you know, if you continue on there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, after he talks about it being foolishness to the people that are perishing, but it's the power of God to us, then he says, in First Corinthians one twenty nine, that no flesh. He's referring to our own self effort should glory in His presence, and that's what today's message is all about, brothers and sisters. Self effort as opposed to submission to God and to His righteousness. What we need to do is we need to have the attitude in life of what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane before, just before he went to the cross. He said, not thy will, 
Not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Let your will be done in my life. And those words that were spoken by the Lord there in the Garden of Gethsemane ring true to us uh, for us today as much as they did 2,000 years ago when he uttered them. It rang true for the Apostle Paul because he tells us in Galatians 2.20, I've shared that scripture with you many times, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Also, Jesus said in uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, he said, then he said to them all, not just his disciples, he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, in examining the context of this passage that I just read in Luke chapter 9, the first three Gospels all have it. They're called the Synoptic Gospels because they kind of follow along the same events. And all three, uh, those first uh, uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have this passage. And if you read it in its context, it is preceded by Peter's great uh, confession. Jesus said, who do the men say that I am? And they came up with some say Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then he said, who do you say I am? And what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of the, the living God. And Jesus commended him for saying this. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but who? My father in heaven revealed it to you. But then right after he says, you know, okay, I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. Here's what's going to happen to me. He says, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be turned over to the religious leaders who are going to make me suffer many things. And then I will die and be raised on the third day. Peter must have been tearing his heart out. He's, you know, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Lord. This is not going to happen to you. And Jesus rebuked him. Before he was talking about, you got your revelation for the Father. Now he says, get behind me, Satan. Satan is telling you this. Trying to dissuade, uh, dissuade me from doing what the Father has called me to do. And... You know, it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, that uh, he said this, and he, he, then he talks about those immortal words about self-denial, taking up one's cross, that is living a life deep surrender and following him. And you know, what's interesting is Jesus hadn't yet indicated what kind of death he was going to die. But he had the foreshadowing. And he said, Do you have to take up your cross and follow me. 
He knew what kind of death he was going to die. <clears throat> now notice the progression of Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If any man, who's any man, any person, actually it doesn't say man in the Greek New Testament, it says if anyone, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. So that's the universal call to all mankind. And Mark chapter 8 verse 34 says it's said to all the people and not just his disciples. Will come after me, that is, chooses to come after me. You have to make that choice. It's a matter of free volition. You know, Jesus never forced anyone to follow him. So why in the church history, most notably, you know, the play, uh, groups such as the Roman Catholic Church during the Inquisition, they forced people to become Catholic. That's not Jesus' way. Jesus' way is whosoever will may come. He called, he said, Come unto me, all that you la are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you peace. He never forced anyone to follow him. We do that out of our own free volition. Always a matter of choice. But if you're going to follow after him, you have to first deny yourself. And that's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. He denied himself, his own self-will, and submitted himself wholly to his Father's will. He denied himself because his flesh shrank back. He was, he was truly God and he was truly man. And the man part of him didn't want to do that. Because he knew the pain that was going to be involved. And even he at that point, you remember I, I told you, one of the parts of, uh, you know, it talks about in Philippians chapter 2, that he emptied himself. King James Version reads, made of himself no reputation. The, it literally says he emptied himself. He emptied himself of many of his divine attributes. And I believe one of those divine attributes was uh, his, uh, uh, <clears throat> his omniscience. He, he, he was all-knowing while he was the son of God in heaven. He laid that aside. There are things that even he didn't know. You say, well, how did he know then stuff like uh, uh, when Lazarus died? How, how, come, how did he know that Lazarus had died, even though he was uh, a few days' journey away from there? Well, he knew it because the God, the Holy Spirit, communicated that to him. He was exercising what is called the word of knowledge, you know, and that's a, a gift that God can give us too. Okay? But I don't believe he fully understood at this point. It wasn't that he was going to the, that cross and su going to suffer and died. It's that for the first time in all of eternity, he was going to be separated from his father as his father laid upon him the sins of the world. And God cannot look upon sin. 
That explains why he hung, when he hung up there, he said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Because the father had abandoned him at that very moment. You know, some of these things, you know, that kind of puzzle you make sense when you really start to think them through. Okay, so anyway, Jesus denied himself. He said, not my will, but yours be done. He surrendered his will completely to the Father's will. And then he picked up his cross. He says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross. You know, my first year of Bible college, I had a roommate. His name was uh, uh, Greg Jacob. And he was one of the, truly the uh, greatest men of God I, I've ever known. Even though he was only in his early 20s, he just had such a grasp of spiritual principles. And, uh, you know, second year of Bible college, he was staying at the home of uh, uh, some lady. And he said he was talking to her. He says, I was discussing with my landlady. And I, I said, uh, you know, you need to pick up your cross. And his landlady had no idea what that meant. And she asked him what it meant. And he said, you know, I never really thought about it that much. But picking up the cross means living a life of deep surrender to God's will. You forfeit your own will and you surrender to God's will. So this is that self-denial. You remember, deny yourself, that self-denial. Denying what you want. Picking up your cross is that self-denial and submission to God's will in action. It means totally surrender to, surrendering to God's will. You know, for Jesus, that meant going to the cross. For us, it almost certainly will mean something else, uh, very different. Our brothers and sisters... Overseas in Muslim lands and communist lands, many of them are undergoing tremendous persecution. So they know what it means to pick up the cross. Not maybe a literal cross, but many times they're imprisoned and even killed for the cause of Jesus Christ. And then Luke adds this little word here, daily. You know, this, this passage is found also in Mar, uh, uh, Matthew and Mark. But only Luke adds this word, little word in there, daily. What's the significance of uh, daily? Just on Sunday. That, that's right. Not on, just on Sunday. Daily means it's not a one-shot deal. Well, I picked up my cross. Are you doing it on a daily basis? And if I could interpolate into God's word a little bit, it doesn't mean daily. It means hourly. It means every minute and every second of each day because it's t pick, denying yourself and picking up your cross is an attitude that you need to have. It's not a one-shot deal. And then he says, then you can follow me. So many folks wonder why their Christianity is not working for them. You know why? 
is because they're not practicing the first two elements of self-denial and then living that life of deep surrender to God's will. Jesus further explains this in verse 24 of Luke chapter 9. He said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But he, whoever loses his life for my sake, will save it. So losing, what is losing one's life? It doesn't mean you just commit suicide. It means, you, you know, this throws a lot of people off because they don't exactly get it. And that's why you need to take both of those verses, 23 and 24, in context together. Losing one's life means that practicing of self-denial and living a new life in deep surrender. I've told you before, that's what baptism means. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him. The old self, the old self-will is dead and buried. We reckon him to be dead and buried. That as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also ought to walk in newness of life. That's why I tell you the only valid baptism is not sprinkling, but it's immersion. Because it simulates the death, burial, and resurrection. You're dead to that old self, and now you're living a new life in surrender to God. Amen? Amen? Okay. Losing one's life means practicing this self-denial and living a life of deep surrender, the new life. Amen? Now, I'm going to give you some quotes out of uh, Hessian's book, Roy Hessian's book, about this. He writes in, verse, uh, in uh, page 14 of this book, he writes, The Lord Jesus cannot live in us fully and reveal himself to us until the proud self, the old self, is broken. You live a broken life. That is, you know, when you, when you break a horse, you know, those of you that know all about this, you know, you live on ranches, you have horses, you got to break the horse's will. Right? To conform it to your will. That's what we need to have happen to us. We need to be broken. That means the hard, unyielding self, which, number one, justifies itself. I told you last week about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. What did the Pharisee The Pharisee went down not forgiven. Why? Because he justified himself before the Lord. Never justify yourself before the Lord. The Lord has justified you if you receive what he did for the, uh, you on the cross by faith. Number two, wants its own way. Do you always want your own way? You know, you, you're in a house, uh, you know, with family and everything. Do you always assert yourself? I got to have my own way. Sometimes you have to bend your will to the, you know, desires of others. Stands up for its rights. I've got rights. You know, I, I read one uh, thing one time. Should you teach your children their rights? The answer is, maybe. But you know what you need to teach them? Rather, you need to teach them their responsibilities. 
And we have responsibilities before Almighty God, don't we? Amen? How many of you know I'm preaching the truth? We've got responsibilities before God. Seeks its own glory. Too often we try to seek our own glory. You know, God put me in this position as pastorate. I'm not doing it for my own glory. If I'm doing it for my own glory, there's no reward. I do it for the glory of God. Amen? That's why I'm up here. For the glory of God to communicate His word to you. And I pray that you have open hearts and and receive it. Okay, so at last bows itself to God's will, admits its wrongs, gives up its way to Jesus, surrenders its own rights, and discards its own glory. That the Lord Jesus might have all and be all. In other words, it is dying to self and self-attitudes. Hessian goes on to say, with regards to Christian work, he states, you know, it's always self that gets irritable, you know. You know, you get irritable with members of the congregation, you know. Why can't they do that? You know, kind of grumble and everything. Envious, you know, look to other ministries and you envy them. Why don't I have a bigger church than they have? You know, uh, critical, you know. So often people get critical in the church. Instead of being critical, you know, get involved yourself. Resentful and worried, you know. It is self that is hard and unyielding in its attitudes to others. It is self that is shy, self-conscious, and reserved. No wonder we need breaking. Then Hessian says this, Being broken is both God's work and ours. He brings his pressure to be to bear. What's he talking about? Pressure to bear. Well, that's talking about the convicting of his Holy Spirit. Jesus said that when he that is the comforter, the Holy Spirit would come, he would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So if you feel convicted of sin sometime, That's the Holy Spirit prompting you within and saying, you need to change this. There's sin in your life. You need to change that. Okay? He brings his pressure to bear, but we have to make the choice. If we are really open to conviction, there's that word, as we seek fellowship with God, and in parentheses he adds, and willingness for the light is the prime condition of fellowship with God. With God. Is that biblical? What did 1 John 1 uh, 7 say? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, keeps on cleansing us from every sin. What's walk in the light mean? It means you expose yourself to the searchlight of God's Holy Spirit. You don't hide anything from Him. And if He brings to light something that is not right in your life, 
you immediately confess it. And that's what it means, walking in the light. Come into the searchlight of God's Holy Spirit. Okay? He says, God, uh, God will show us the expression of this proud, hard self that causes him pain. You know, it says that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Doesn't it say that? Grieve, it causes God pain when we harbor sin in our life and we don't do something about it. Then it is that we can stiffen our necks and refuse to repent or we can bow our heads and say, yes, Lord. Brokenness in daily experience is simply the response of humility to the conviction of God. And inasmuch as this conviction is continuous, there again, it's continuous. We shall need to be broken continually. So denying yourself and taking up the cross, it's a continual process that you need to do every day and every second for that mean. As we have already seen, the surrender to God's will is not a one-shot deal. And finally, Hessian says this, For this reason we are not likely to be broken except at the cross of Jesus. That's why this, mess, this series is all about the cross of Jesus. The willingness of Jesus to be broken for us is an all-compelling motive for our being broken too. And now he alludes here to Philippians, that uh, kenosis passage, the emptying passage in Philippians chapter uh, 2. We see him who is in the form of God, counting not equality with God a prize to be grasped at or hung on to, but letting it go for us and taking on himself the form of a servant, God's servant and man's servant. So many people don't like that idea. Oh, I don't want to be a servant. You know, you hear that many times. I don't like being a servant. But we're all supposed to be servants, right? Servants of God and servants to each other. We see him willing to have no rights of his own. Jesus had no rights of his own. He had no home of his own. He had no possessions of his own. You know, when he was crucified, the only thing that he had left were the clothes on his back. Yeah, and uh, he left it all. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, because what did uh, uh, Paul say? You know, he said, we took nothing into this world, and we're not going to leave it all behind. You're not going to take anybody else, uh, anywhere else. You never saw a hearse hauling a U-Haul trailer, Amen. We leave it all behind. So we really don't own anything. Stop acting like you own it. You're a steward of it. Amen? Be a good steward. Okay, no possessions of his own. Willing to let men revile him and not revile again. Willing to let men tread on him and not retaliating or defending himself. Above all, we see him broken 
as he meekly goes to Calvary to become man's scapegoat by bearing their sins upon a tree. And the last thing I'll share with uh, Hessian's book is his quote of uh, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. If you don't know it, I would suggest that you get familiar with it. Everybody knows Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, da da da, you know. But how many of you know what's in Psalm 22? Psalm 22 is the crucifixion psalm. You read through it, and it's a word picture of what it means to be crucified. And in fact, it was a prediction of the crucifixion of the Lord, which happened 2,000 years later. And what's more amazing is when David wrote this, a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, you know, crucifixion hadn't even been invented as a form of execution. The Persians were the ones that invented it, and then the Romans picked it up and perfected it. But he says there in verse 6 of Psalm 22, I am a worm and no man. And, you know, Hessian drives the, the distinction between a worm and a snake. You attack a worm and just sits there and lies there and let, let you do whatever you want to it. What's a snake do? Snake re rears up there, you know, and it'll strike back. That's a picture of self striking back and not the meek submission of a worm. So that's why Psalm 22 verse 6 says, I am a worm and no man. I'm completely submitted to whatever man was going to do to me in nailing me to that cross. It's a picture of brokenness, the worm. And another illustration is given is also Jesus was a lamb, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Does the Lamb strike back at you? It says in uh, Isaiah 53 verse 7, He is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is dumb, so he uttered not a word. He didn't protest about what they were doing. There's not a word of protesting. You know, I don't deserve this. Why are you doing this to me? No, Jesus never said that. He meekly submitted to his father's will and let those men nail him to a cross. You know, is this always a true picture, though, of what the Christian life is about? And not... And my answer is not always. There are times that uh, Christians must take a stand, not simply necessarily for yourself, but for others, for the people that can't stand uh, or, you know, <clears throat> stand up for uh, themselves. You know, I, I was reading... Uh, just last night, uh, this uh, little article about a conservative commentator by uh, 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 by the name of Glenn Beck. 
And Glenn Beck was talking, I'm, I'm more afraid for my country now than ever before. The way things are going down. And there's times that we need to stand up and call out the world for its sin. And Glenn Beck wrote this, Stop thinking of Jesus Christ only as a lamb. He was also a lion. But he was a lion that roared against injustice. And there's plenty of examples of this in the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. He went to the temple one day. In fact, it was the week that he was crucified. He looked around and he saw these money changers. And people selling animals. And as my mentor, uh, the late Dr. Walter R. Martin said, he, he wasn't meek at all. He got himself a, a whip of cords and he flogged their posteriors out of the temple. Now, why did he do that? Well, the thing is, people would come to the temple to offer sacrifices in order to cleanse themselves and purify themselves before God so that they could worship him. And they would bring animals, maybe from their flocks. And the uh, priest would take a look at it and he finds something wrong with it. He said, you can't offer that as a sacrifice. There's this little blemish here. You need to go over there and buy a lamb that is pure. Sold by my cronies, of course. And they would be charging exorbitant prices for that. So they went to pay for it. And they said, oh, this is Roman money. You can't, you can't pay for this lamb, you know, with Roman money. You got to go over there to the money changers. And then the money changers were charging exorbitant exchange rates. So they're getting the double whammy. And Jesus was angry because the people that came there to purify themselves before the Lord God so they could worship him were getting ripped off. And so Jesus, this is one of only two times that I can think of where it says that Jesus got angry and he took action. Not exactly the Lamb of God at that point. Instead, he was the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Another time he called out the Pharisees. This, this is also during Holy Week. And you read about how in uh, the seven woes in Matthew chapter 23. My favorite is uh, where he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs that look pure and clean on the outside, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And he delivered seven of these uh, woes, you know, calling out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and the fact that they were leading the common people astray and not preaching the right word of God. Apollos in uh, chapter 18 of Acts, verse uh, 28, Apollos was, uh, uh, you know, he was one of these real uh, go-getters, you know, and uh, he had a gift, he had a lot of charisma, and so it says that he vigorously uh, refuted the Jewish people that denied that Jesus was the Christ. 
you know, denied his sacrifice. He refuted them and proved from the scriptures that Jesus was indeed the Christ. And my favorite is this last one here. Uh, Stephen gets hauled in front of the uh, Sanhedrin because he's accused of preaching against the temple. And he gives this long speech. You read all about it in uh, Acts chapter 7. You know, showing that he did indeed believe in the Jewish faith. But it wasn't complete because it didn't bring, you know, out Jesus Christ and his death for the sins of the world. And this is the way he finishes up his speech here. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. I love this passage. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your not, fathers not persecute? And they have slain them who showed the, uh, before the coming of the just one. The just one was Jesus. He says, you killed the prophets that prophesied about Jesus coming. Of whom... Jesus, of Jesus, you have now become the betrayers and murderers. And this is the one that broke the straw, that broke the camel's back. He says in verse 53, who have not received, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. That was what really set them off because he put his finger on their problem and they rejected it uh, completely. And the rest is history. Stephen became the first martyr. I wish that, you know, I, I, I know that God had his will. I really wish he could have lived because we would have, you know, read some really fantastic exploits of, uh, about him. But God chose to take his life. That, and, you know, it says when he's, you know, about ready to, to pass on from this life, he says he saw the heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Well, I thought he was seated at the right hand of God, but Jesus stood at that point to receive the very first martyr of the Christian church. So that's what Christian apologetics is all about, and that's, that was kind of how I cut my teeth in the ministry, ministering to the uh, cults and the occult. You speak out in defense of truth, and against error. So what does this message mean for me? First of all, you surrender your will daily to the Lord as we've read there in Luke chapter 9 verse 23. This involves opening your life up to him for him to convict you of sin. And I've shared these scriptures with you many times. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That should be a prayer for every one of us on a daily basis. Amen? Psalm 19, verses 12 and 14. Who can understand his errors? And get this, cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from willful sins. 
Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Those two verses, I mean, those two passages ought to be our, our prayers every day. Also, Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. It says, delight yourself also in the Lord. You know what delight there means? It means be pliable. Be the clay in the potter's hands. Let him mold you and make him into what he wants you to be. A lot of people say, oh, I'm delighting myself in the Lord. You know, and he's going to give me the desires of my heart. You know, I want a million dollars, God. I'm delighting myself in you. How come you're not giving me the million dollars? Well, the thing is, you weren't pliable. That's the reason why. Because if you're pliable, then your desires should be his desires, right? Amen? Am I right? Your desires need to be his desires. Verse 5 of uh, Psalm 37, Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Commit your way to the Lord. Be pliable. Say, not my will, but yours be done. And finally, Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. You can't see the big picture. But you know what? He can. Okay? That's why you don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And what we learn from these Old Testament passages is that this matter of self-denial and dying to oneself with its desires, ambitions, and living for its own glory was not a new concept espoused by the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul. It was very much a part of the teachings of the Old Testament as well. For example, Abraham. God, you know, God gives him this miraculous, you know, son, you know, son that was conceived in a miraculous way, and then God turns around to him and says, "Okay, I want you to sacrifice him." That must have been really hard for Abraham, but he trusted in the Lord. He didn't lean to his own understanding, and he went to sacrifice Isaac. And the angel of the Lord stayed his hand, and it didn't happen. You know, the writer of Hebrews talks about that, and he said, well, he, he, he was thinking that even if he did kill Isaac, God would raise him up. That's how much faith he had in the Lord. Okay, number two. Be ready... For the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit, if you should begin to slip into that old self in any other way, in any way. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor to detest his correction. 
For whom the Lord loves, he uh, corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is also quoted by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. So when that spirit of conviction of the Lord comes on you, don't harden your heart or stiffen your neck in resistance to him. And you know something, brothers and sisters? The more you follow the Lord, the more you get used to his voice. Amen? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They don't know the voice of the hireling. They know my voice. Listen to that voice and don't stiffen your heart. You don't do what the Spirit leads you to do. You know what? That voice begins to get fainter and fainter. You want to hear, how many of you want to hear the voice of the Lord? Okay, you want to listen to the voice of the Lord, you do what he says. Amen? And you know what? The Lord's voice is never harsh and condemning. That's the voice of Satan. If you feel really condemned about something, you know, that's the devil trying to put the guilt trip on you. The Holy Spirit is pictured as what? What creature? It's pictured as a dove, not a bird of prey, going to come and tear you up. It's a dove, gentle. I recall this uh, story of a missionary couple that went to Israel, you know, to minister for the Lord there. They moved into this apartment, and soon afterward, uh, this pair of doves built a little nest right out there in the eaves, you know, uh, uh, you know, under their uh, window. And they noticed something about these doves. They had kind of, some kind of strife or conflict, you know, maybe an argument together. You know what happened? The doves flew away. And they began to take that as a sign from the Lord that they needed to practice his self-denial, dying to themselves and not have these arguments because they were scared to death that it, they, they, the doves may fly away. You know, and they regarded those doves as a sign of God's blessing upon them and their ministry. And they didn't want to lose them. That's the way the Holy Spirit is. Amen. Hallelujah. He's gentle. And so God's voice to you, he may bring about a conviction of sin, but he'll do it in a uh, uh, soft way. Okay, we're almost finished here. Number three, be willing, be ready and willing to accept rebuke from others that may see that old self of your, you rearing its ugly head again. The writer of uh, Proverbs wrote in uh, Proverbs uh, chapter Three, uh, um, he says, uh, do not correct the scoffer. You know, I've got the wrong reference on there. That's the, that should be Proverbs not, chapter 9, verse 8. Do not correct a scoffer lest he, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Are you a wise person? Are you a wise Christian? It means you expect that, that you accept a rebuke from someone if it's valid. It's interesting that uh, Paul doesn't, 
He says, uh, don't correct a scoffer. That means somebody outside the church. You know, they may come up and, you know, you may try to rebuke them or something like that. But, you know, it says that they're, they're not going to listen to you. You know, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses, uh, I mean, 5, verses 9 through 11. He talks about this uh, man that was committing gross sin in the church. And he says, don't bother rebuking, you know, people outside the church for their fornication. They don't see anything wrong with it. But if you see something like that in the church, you spring into action. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't speak out against the sins of the world. Because we see, like with, with this gender ideology going on, who's getting hurt? The, the little children are getting hurt. Amen? And we need to speak out against that. Don't let it continue. You know, gender, the radical gender ideology, it's true of that. The sin of abortion, too. Innocent little babies being killed in the womb. We need to speak out against that, too. You know, John the Baptist, he didn't care. What did he do? He rebuked Herod and his wife, Herodias, because it was an illicit relationship. What happened to him? He got thrown in prison. He eventually beheaded for it. But he spoke out against it. He didn't tolerate it. And we shouldn't be tolerating the sins that are going on in this world, in this nation, because God is going to call down judgment on this nation unless we get right. When people rebuke us, you know, I was just talking to Susie about this before the... Um, uh, service here and the the older I get brothers and sisters the more I see what the secret to success and especially success in the Christian life you know what it is to maintain a teachable spirit you know and there's been a lot of times when I've been rebuked uh, sometimes that they've, they've been very valid and I received what uh, those people had to say. And that's the last one here. Yeah, the fourth thing it means is be prepared to rebuke those in the church who are guilty not only of gross sin, but obviously have a, an attitude of self and living in the flesh and not in the spirit. And one caveat I will say to this last point here is make sure you do it in the right spirit. You know, I once attended this debate between a creationist and an evolutionist. I think it, that, that was the setting and we're listening there and I kind of remarked to my friend that was next to me, you know, fellow cult witnessing uh, 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 friend and I said, uh, Walter Martin you know, referring to my mentor, Walter Martin, I said, Walter Martin would eat this guy's lunch. And he says to me, Cliff, how can you do, say such a thing? This is a soul for whom Christ died. Well, you know what? He, he was probably right. But the way that he did it, 
You know, he could have gently told me that uh, you should show more compassion for him as a, a soul that needs Jesus Christ. He could have done it in a gentle spirit instead of just lashing out at me like that. So don't lash out at people if you think that there's something that needs correcting. You know what you do? You hold that person up in prayer and ask if uh, you should confront them about it. And if you do confront them, do it in that meek and gentle spirit. Amen? Don't lash out at people. You know, you may be right, but if you do it in the wrong spirit, they're going to reject it. Amen? Hallelujah. Okay, that's, that's all I've 